I didn't expect to be here tonight, and I'm sure you didn't expect me to be here. I'm um, a very poor substitute for Andy, but uh, I'll do my best. Let's just pray for a moment before we turn to God's Word. Father, these folks haven't come here tonight to listen to me, but all of us are here to listen to you. And we pray that as we open the Scriptures, that you will open our hearts open our minds, and we pray that we will learn something new or something that we've learned a long time ago but perhaps have forgotten. We pray that we'll hear your voice nevertheless and never be the same again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might like to keep your Bible open at the passage that we've just read. Ten years or so prior to the events that we've just read about here in 2 Kings 2, let me remind you that Elisha left his plow in the field to put his hand on another plow, never to look back. And that plow, of course, is the plow of service, the plow of serving the Lord first as an assistant or an attendant to the great prophet Elijah, and then serving the Lord as a prophet in his own right. Elisha was to shadow Elijah for approximately 10 years before he eventually took over from the great man himself after he had run his race and finished his course. On the eve of Elijah's departure from this world, he said to his protege, Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? What a question to ask. What can I do for you before I'm taken from you? What a question to be asked by one of the greatest prophets who has ever lived. What can I do for you? Now, Elisha didn't need a week to think about it. He knew exactly what he needed. He knew exactly what he wanted. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for fame. He simply said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. He wanted, in other words, the portion of the firstborn. He knew he was going to need all the help that heaven could give him in days to come. Now, it's not that he wanted a double portion so that he could be twice as successful as Elijah. Although, interestingly enough, there is probably twice as much recorded about Elisha in the Bible than there is about Elijah. But that wasn't the reason why he asked for a double portion. He just knew that if he was to fulfill his ministry, as Elijah had finished his ministry, then that is what it would take. An endowment, if you like to call it that, an endowment of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Raymond Brown preached a series on the life of Elijah, life of Elisha, when I was at the Keswick Convention, probably 
20 years or so ago. And he said on that occasion that in asking for a double portion, it wasn't an expression of arrogance on Elisha's part. It was really a confession of weakness. Elisha wanted to make sure that when Elijah left this scene of time, the God of Elijah would not believe him. He wanted so much that the God of Elijah would be the God of Elisha. And you know what happened following the reading tonight? Elijah makes his exit in a whirlwind accompanied by chariots of fire. And as he does so, he drops his cloak, he drops his mantle in the process. And Elijah's last miracle was to become Elisha's first miracle when he picked up the cloak, when he picked up the mantle, and he did what Elijah did. He struck the waters of the Jordan and they divided in front of his eyes. He started his ministry where Elijah left off. And the school of the prophets who were there in that region soon realized that there was a new sheriff in town. Now what I want to do this evening is to look with you not at the details of what happened there, but of what happened next. It's really all about two very, very different situations that arose in two very different cities. And they teach us two very different truths. That as the people of God, or as those who are not the people of God, but who are interested in these things, two very basic and fundamental truths, truths that we need constantly to be reminded of, and there's no better time to do it tonight. Now, I was trained in the faith mission. That means you normally preach with three points. But I'm only going to preach in two points tonight. But you're not going to be shortchanged having said that. I want you first of all to notice something that took place in a condemned city. What you have towards the end of this second chapter is Elisha retracing the steps of Elijah in that he goes from the river Jordan back the way he and Elijah had come together earlier. Wherever he goes from this day forwards, his ministry is going to be accompanied by similar miracles to those seen in Elijah's ministry. They are what Ian Hamilton, who's a Presbyterian minister in Cambridge, they are what Ian Hamilton calls redemptive punctuations in history. That's a big mouthful for a Sunday night. It just simply means they're all about God breaking through into our world to show us his power and to show us his glory. If you like, God coming from where he is to where we are to remind us that he is the living God. As he goes back from the Jordan, the way he and Elijah had come earlier, Elisha arrives at the city of Jericho. A city, just like Edinburgh, with a history. Very much so. 
So let me remind you of the history of Jericho. Let me take you back, some of you at least, to your Sunday school days. When Joshua took over from Moses, the first thing he had to do was to take the children of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land. And the first obstacle that stood in the way of God's people conquering, possessing the land, was the city of Jericho. It was the symbol of Canaan's invincible might. It was eventually conquered, of course, as they marched around it once a day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day, just to remind us that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Jericho was a city that was to be devoted to God in its entirety. Burned to the ground. Raised to the ground. Devoted to God. Only Rahab and her family, living in the house where the scarlet cord was visible, were spared. And you may remember that Joshua at that time pronounced a solemn curse over the city. Let me remind you of it. Joshua 6 and 26. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. And so Jericho lay condemned in ruins for years and years. But in the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, during Elijah's ministry, when obedience to the Word of God wasn't exactly a priority with the people of God, you may remember that a man called Hiel, a Bethelite, defiantly rebuilt the city of Jericho. But true to Scripture, he paid the price for doing it. He paid the price for laying its foundations and setting up its gates in the loss of his two sons, Abiram and Segub. You can read about that in 1 Kings 16, 34. But here we are years later, and Jericho is still a city, suffering from the legacy of the past. It's a city that seems to be still under condemnation, under a curse. Although it had been rebuilt at a cost, we read here in 2 Kings 2.19 that they're facing a very serious problem with the water supply. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but I understand that that phrase, the water is bad and the land is unproductive, probably means that the region is suffering from something in the water supply that is so lethal 
that it resulted in miscarriages taking place among the animals as well as among the citizens of the city. And the land was affected. It was unproductive. The water was so polluted, it caused multiple fatalities to take place before the moment of birth with every living thing. Miscarriages. Now, it's what happens next that may appear to people like us living in the 21st century may appear to us to be somewhat bizarre. Because in verse 20, the prophet Elijah says, in the light of all this, bring me a new bowl. Put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and he threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Now, if you were the preacher standing up here, what would you say about that? I didn't know what to say about it until I did a series in Musselboro fairly recently. I don't think there's any significance in the use of a new bowl, do you? Bring me a new bowl, he said. I don't think there's any significance in that. And as far as the salt is concerned, the salt's only a sign. There's nothing magic in the salt. It's a sign of the blessing of God to those living in this city of crisis. It's a symbol, it's a picture, if you like, of the goodness and the grace of God in His ability to deal with any problem at source. But it's nothing more than that. I would submit to you that the real transformation in the water supply affecting the city took place as a direct result of God's Word being spoken and God Himself coming and intervening to bring His blessing to a place that had been under a curse for centuries. In other words, it wasn't the salt that made the difference. It was the spoken Word of God that made all the difference. And if you read the passage carefully, that is exactly what we are being told here. Thankfully, the curse resting on the city of Jericho from Joshua's day was not to be God's last word to the inhabitants of that city. When Elisha threw in the salt, he said, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day according to the word Elisha has spoken. It was the Word of God that made all the difference. Now, Dave Ralph Davis, in his tremendous commentary on Second Kings, puts it as only he can put it. He just simply says, Curseville has now become Graceborough. If you come from Northern Ireland, you would put it like this. Ballycurse has now become Ballygrace. 
But what are we meant to make of it? What is the lesson we should learn from this? This story is not found here in the pages of the Bible simply for our interest or to furnish us with detailed information from the historic past. It's not here to provide us with a good question in a game of biblical trivial pursuits. It's here for our instruction, isn't it? I just read this morning. All Scripture is theopneustos. God breathed. It's here He teaches a very important lesson. It's here so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, this Scripture, we might have hope. Yes, it's telling us that when the source is wrong, everything is wrong. Of course. But it's also telling us that everything can be changed. And in this situation, in an instant, it was changed by the power of God in accordance with the Word of God spoken by the servant of God. And the cure, we are told, was permanent. It wasn't temporary. I would imagine that from that day on, everybody, anybody, any, pardon me, every time anybody came to get a drink of water in the city of Jericho, they would remember God is good. God is gracious. It's telling us that God delights to bless his people. That's what this is telling us. It's, it's telling us that God specializes in coming into situations and transforming them for good by his grace and for his glory. God's word coming through God's servant accompanied by God's authority and power, can make all the difference. It can bring change into the most impossible of situations. It can bring the kind of change that all the politicians and all the spin doctors on both sides of the Atlantic can never achieve. God's Word, clearly spoken, into a situation. It can bring hope where there's only been despair. What you have here is an example of God intervening through his spoken word to bring light where there was darkness, freedom, where there was bondage, life, where there is death. And if I may say so, and I don't need to say it from a pulpit like this, but if I may say so, this is why the preaching of the Word of God must always be given the central place in any gatherings of the people of God. As we pray, as we seek to honor God in our lives, we can ask God to come to all of us in the preaching of the Word by His life-giving Spirit because He's able to make all things new. I mean, you think about this, what confidence a passage like this must bring to a young pastor, say, called to minister 
in a situation, in a congregation that's never had an evangelical ministry before. When I was in the faith mission, some of the villages we went into in the Midlands of England had never had a Bible ministry for a century. You take a young man in Scotland, a parish minister, true to the Word of God, going into some of the tough wee villages and communities in our country. A passage like this will give him hope. He comes to a place that's like the valley described by in Ezekiel 37, a valley full of dry bones, very dry bones. But he comes knowing, at least from this passage, that if he speaks the Word of God, without doctoring it, without tweaking it, if he speaks it in the power of the Holy Spirit, dry bones can come together and flesh can cover them and they can rise again to become a great army for the Lord. A passage like this can teach us that lesson. What encouragement, I tell you, this is to any faithful preacher of God's Word in any situation anywhere in the world. And what a message there is here for someone who has perhaps personally been struggling for years with a besetting sin. A sexual sin, perhaps. Or someone who's been plagued by the memory of some wrongdoing that happened in the past and that continually haunts him and stalks him wherever he goes or wherever she goes. God's Word comes with a message of hope. This part of God's Word. What encouragement there is in this miracle for somebody who's been crushed, perhaps, by the circumstances of life, shattered by a cruel bereavement, or wounded in the house of his friends, over church politics, for example. What encouragement and hope there is here for somebody rejected in their marriage, somebody who's been disappointed by the way things are going, somebody who's been discouraged by the insensitivity of others, someone who's been disheartened by their own failure or the failure of others. This that happened here in Jericho tells us what God can do when He comes into any situation and the Word of God is heard. And the Spirit of God is upon the speaking of that Word. No wonder the prophet said to the people of old, Hear, listen, and your soul shall live. God's telling us that He can still deliver us from all our fears. He can still make weaklings like you and me strong in His strength for the task He's asking us to do. He can still wipe away tears from eyes. He can still heal broken hearts. God can still give back the years that the locusts have eaten. The blood of Jesus still cleanses from all sin. These truths are as true today as they've ever been. This living God can cause us to breathe again and live again and serve again in the way that we ought to be breathing and living and serving for His glory. This is telling us He can make the wilderness blossom like the rose. If He can make dirty water clean and drinkable, He can change the worst of situations. He can save the worst of sinners. And I want you to know tonight, we're the only people on the planet 
who have a message of hope like this. There is a way back there. That's the first thing. The second thing and the last thing is this. In contrast, I want you to look at something that took place now in a privileged city. That's something that took place in a condemned city. Let's look at something that took place in a privileged city. In the history of God's people, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, would know the word Bethel. Takes us back, doesn't it, through the centuries to the experience Jacob had when he was fleeing from the wrath of his brother Esau after he'd been deceived by him. We read in Genesis 28. He left Beersheba. He set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. You remember what happened? God spoke to him that night gave him the promise that it would be through him and his offspring that the purposes of God would be worked out. God would be with him and watch over him wherever he went. He would bring Jacob back into the land. And then God said to him, I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And when Jacob awoke out of his sleep, he thought, what did he think? Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it, and he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And there and then he went to make a vow to the Lord. You know, we sometimes sing that old hymn, O God of Bethel by whose hand thy people still are fed, who through this weary pilgrimage hast all our fathers led. Our vows and prayers we now present before your throne of grace. God of our fathers, be the God of their succeeding race. Know that hymn? Bethel was a privileged place at one time in its history. It really was. The Bible actually tells us it was the house of God and the gate of heaven. God made himself and his plans known to Jacob of all people at Bethel. But the tragedy is that a privileged place can through time become overrun with evil. And you know, when the kingdom divided after Solomon's reign, it was at Bethel where Jeroboam, son of Nebat, set up his bull worship in 1 Kings 12. And idolatry and apostasy became the order of the day in Bethel, even although it was once the house of God and the gate of heaven. And even although there was still a school of the prophets there. The false religion introduced by Jeroboam the son of Nebat had taken root 80 years or so 
previous to this event we're looking at here. And there had never been a good king over the northern kingdom since. It had gone from bad to worse, and it meant that there was now open hostility on the streets of the city towards those who were God's faithful servants. Opposition had become in your face. Opposition. And here we are in a generation had arisen who were laughing at God's representatives who were living and serving him in that area. Scoffed at them. Mocked them. Ridiculed them. Verbally abused them. The parents' apostasy with the passing of time was reflected in their children's mockery. That's what it says. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and as he's walking along the road, some youths come out, out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. When I used to read that, I wonder, what on earth is that all about? Now, some translations talk about these youths as though they were wee bairns, little children. But the word that's used doesn't refer to little children coming out of a kindergarten. It refers to lads who were perhaps 11, 12 years of age, 13, maybe 14. Young lads ganging together who knew what they were doing. We would call them, what would we call them? Hoodies? Juvenile delinquents? Out to make trouble? And I can tell you that this meeting with Elisha wasn't accidental. It wasn't a childish prank. They didn't just bump into Elisha one day as he was walking along the road. No, no. The youth of Bethel were hanging around in groups with very little to do, looking for opportunities to have a go at those who were easy targets for their comments. It's amazing how a place that can be the house of God and the gate of heaven can come to this. We used to shout back as kids at those who shouted at us across the street, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So what's the big deal here? What makes this different? You can look at this and wonder if the prophet is not just, you know, being a little bit oversensitive to name-calling and overreacting as they jeered at him. Go on up, bald head. Go on up, you bald head. But we need to understand that this group of youngsters were showing contempt for someone who was God's representative on earth. And in doing what they were doing, they're shouting contempt at God. And if I've got the right feel of the passage and the right sense of the passage, what they were really saying to Elijah was this, if I may paraphrase it, go on up, you old baldy. Don't you stay here. You keep going. We don't want you or your kind around here. Make yourself scarce. You're no welcome here. Get lost. The name of God being dishonored in what they're doing. They're mocking God and mocking the servant of God. And you have to keep that in mind as you try to understand what happened next. 
because what happened next is shocking and it's extremely serious you have to sort of say to yourself do I believe this actually happened well this is Theopneustos this is God breathed scripture he Elisha turned round looked at them called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths and he went on to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria Elisha wasn't losing his cool at this point. This wasn't the uncontrolled action of an unstable, short-tempered, inexperienced, exasperated, irate, impatient, bald-headed prophet trying to get his own back. This, my dear people, was a judgment from God. That's what this was. What happened was the praying down of a covenant curse that you find recorded in the book of Leviticus in chapter 26, where God had just listed rewards for obedience to his ancient people, and he then goes on to make known several punishments for disobedience. And this is one of them in Leviticus 26. If you remain hostile towards me and you refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your affliction seven times over as your sins deserve and I'll send wild animals against you and they'll rob you of your children it's in the Bible and that's exactly what took place as a result of covenant infidelity by parents being taken a step further by their unspiritual, ungodly unruly children and had Elisha been wrong, had he been wrong to call down this curse upon these youths, I think we can take it as read that God would not have acted in order to see to it that the curse was carried out. But you can't escape the fact it was God who sent the bears. And in doing so, he's simply vindicating the message of his servant Elisha answering his prayer keeping faithful to his word the curse is carried out 42 of these youths are mauled to death I wonder what the parents were thinking that day when 42 funerals were held in their city before the sun set and this is the Middle East they don't keep bodies for two days never mind two weeks I wonder, did any of them entertain the thought that night that these children, their children, were paying the penalty for the lifestyle of their parents? What exactly is the message? You're the preacher. I'm, what is the message we're meant to take from this? What is God saying to us? Well, you could say in a general sense, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is. You can't trifle with God. You can't play religious games with God. She might for a while, but you'll not get away with it. But to be more specific, surely the simple, searching message that comes through this passage is this. God will not be mocked. 
God will not be mocked. What we sow, we will reap. At a personal level, at a church level, at a national level, there's the principle. And God is not, as some would want us to think, a nice sort of chap. Some people, even in evangelical circles, don't like to hear anybody strike this kind of note these days. Far too negative. If you preach like that, the people will know come back. Let me quote Ralph Davis again. He refers to this as scare theology. And he's very quick to add that the church needs to recover the truth of a holy fright. And maybe some of us as parents need a fright. Do I feel sometimes that we've lost sight of the fact that God is God? He's not just love. He is love. Thank God he's love. But God is God. Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome and he told them to consider the goodness and severity of God. The goodness and severity of God. Jesus tells us not to be afraid of him who can kill the body, but to fear him, listen, who is able to destroy soul and body in hell. Now these two incidents bring us two very different messages, don't they? One message is that of blessing where there was a curse hanging over the heads of the people. What's the message? It's a great message. And I tell you, after 50 years on the road, it's the greatest message that I've ever heard. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. God can do what nobody else can do. He can come into the darkest situation, the most difficult situation, and he can transform a person's life. Make no mistake about that. But the other message is that of calling down a curse in a place that had known much blessing in the past. God will judge sin wherever he finds it. We will reap what we sow. And we need to hear both sides of the coin. And we need to hear and listen to what God's saying so that we will live and live in the way he wants us to live. Don't we read this in the book of the Hebrews? The word of God is like a sharp, double-edged sword. Yes, it is. It can bring healing. Thank God for that. But it can also inflict hurt. It can bring deliverance. But it can also bring disaster. Blessing but also a curse. God's the God of salvation, but he's also the God of judgment. We need to believe that if the people out there are going to believe it. When God moved in revival in 1859 across parts of North America and the north of Ireland and parts of the UK here, it was marked not so much by great preachers, though there were some great preachers amongst them, but it was marked by great preaching. Men preached on the great themes. Sin, grace, repentance, faith, heaven, hell. And what I see here, you see, is Elisha starting his ministry the way he means to finish it. You see, before you know it, where is he? He's in Samaria. Where's that? 
But that's the capital of the northern kingdom. That's where Satan has his seat. And he's simply giving notice, you see, Elisha, that he's determined to run his race and finish his course and keep the faith in his day as Elijah did in his day. That's why he wanted a double portion of the Spirit. Not so he could swing from chandeliers. Not so he could feel good. But so that he could be faithful to God and stand up and be counted anywhere, no matter where he is or who's there, as a man of God. telling us he's willing to serve God in difficult and dangerous times. He's taking up the challenge facing him, knowing that God is with him. He wants to work while it's day, rather than stay in the trenches and let others go over the top and risk their lives. So my brothers and sisters and my friends, you look at a passage like that, go home and read it for yourself. I was amazed when I started to study this for the first time in my life just about a year ago how powerfully God speaks through this and he wants you and I to know something of the fullness of his spirit in our lives so that we will be faithful as these men were faithful in their day and generation bringing the whole counsel of God to the people 